Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. Napoleon Bonaparte's foreign minister, Talleyrand, famously said, a diplomat who says yes means maybe, a diplomat who says maybe means no, and a diplomat who says no is no diplomat. Ambassador Ashok Mirpuri has just completed 12 years, an unusually long period, as Singapore's ambassador to the United States, the capstone to a four-decade stellar diplomatic career. He retired from his diplomatic service this summer and is now back in Singapore. What do ambassadors actually do? Even in the 21st century, with all of the technological marvels that are transforming our lives, I would argue the most important role of a diplomat is to help his country's leaders understand the realities, the dynamics of his host country. In practice over the last 12 years, that has meant that Ambassador Mirpuri has coped with the vagaries of President Biden, President Trump, President Obama. Probably a more, I don't know if the word's dynamic or turbulent period in American history in the last 50 years, perhaps longer. The fact that he is now an ex-ambassador gives us the opportunity to ask him what he learned those years. What's that turmoil been about? How does Washington look from a perspective of someone who had to understand its dynamics and how it affected his country's national interest? We'll see what he says. So welcome, Ashok. Thank you for joining me for this episode of New Thinking for a New World. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for that introduction. And thank you for that introduction into diplomacy in the 21st century, which is very different from diplomacy in the 19th and 20th century, because as you said, there is a lot more technology, a lot more uh, instant communication. I remember when the uh, first government shutdown I faced in 2013, I looked back at the embassy's reporting in the previous shutdown before that in 1996, and they had an opportunity to provide ideas and perspectives over time back home to headquarters. In the 2013 shutdown, it was instant reporting. People turn on CNN with BBC. What is the role of that embassy in this new 21st century world? Yet, as you say, having your person on the ground, and this is men and women, Having your person on the ground is very important because you have connections, you have connectivity, you see body language, you see faces, you see where people are trying to be honest with you. And it was particularly important during COVID, the three years that I was there during COVID from 2020, because while travel shut down, you still had your person on the ground. You could still meet, even if behind a mask. You could still speak to people. And that made things very important. So 
I see diplomacy, and as I am now a ex-ambassador, a retired diplomat, is still very critical for the future. It is something that we should continue to do and nurture, even as secretaries of state and foreign ministers connect on WhatsApp and every other means. Having a person on the ground is quite critical. It's clearly, as you say, less about news and facts and more, I suspect, about context. What do those facts actually mean? What does that uh, secretary, cabinet secretary mean when she says this or that? What is she thinking that you get a sense of over time, I would imagine? That's an important part of the regular meeting and interaction with people. Now, you asked about the three presidents and three administrations I had to deal with while I was in Washington, D.C. I started with the Obama administration and then the Trump administration and then the Biden administration. Ambassadors do not make a choice of who the people elect as their leader. We work with the leaders who have been elected. That is the reality of it. We make no preferences. My job as a Singapore ambassador was to make sure that Singapore's relationship with each administration stayed at the top, stayed very positive, stayed connected without making any sort of uh, options that we would prefer somebody else. So you and I would expect that today ambassadors in Washington, those who are there now, those who come after me, are already preparing for the 2025 administration, whether it is the second Biden administration or whoever the Republican nominee may potentially be and lead that administration. So that is important. And keeping that consistency even before they come into office. I think the hardest part was the year and a year and a half before presidential election, before the 2016 presidential election, before the 2020 presidential election, because you want to get your message out and connect with people even before they are in office. Now, you've been around administrations, Alan, and you know that when they are in office, they have very little time for people outside. They're very, very busy, and particularly if you're coming from a country on the other side of the world like Singapore. So it means that the connections you make 18 months before they get into office, two years before they get into office, is critical. And then you can start having more honest conversations, more frank conversations. You can exchange perspectives that do are not able to read in the news. And that's where really the critical role was being in Washington from 2012 onwards. But certainly each administration has its own character. Good, bad, or ugly is not the issue. The, the issue is they're different organizations, peopled by different kinds of people. Even Democrat to Democrat administrations or Republican to Republican are different. And it would seem that you've dealt with three administrations that really have been quite different from each other. And it's not a judgment, good or bad, but but what, what are the biggest differences that you've seen over the course of those 12 years, both among the different administrations, but also more generally in, and I put quotes on this, how Washington works? You know, Alan, I think the... the most important thing, why things change, why things sometimes seem so different. We are looking always at the day-to-day and we are looking at different people and different styles and personalities. But what changed a lot in the time that I was there from the early 2010s onwards was geopolitics change. And when geopolitics change, administrations have to respond to the new geopolitics. And 
this is more important in Washington than in any other country. I've been in, an ambassador in various other places before this. Those are very localized politics. You deal with local politics. Yes, geopolitics happens. You adjust to it, but you cannot shape geopolitics as much as they do in Washington, D.C. And in Washington, what has happened in the past decade or so is the geopolitical context has changed. And that has led to changes of how administrations deal with it. Now, I was just reading recently, as people look back, 10 years after the Obama decision about the Syrian red line. That marked a change in geopolitics and people reacted quite differently to that occasion in 2013. Now, as you look at what has happened, and we can get into some of these, the other geopolitical changes that took place, Washington responded. Now, personalities changed as well. Personalities brought, brought different perspectives in. And obviously, what also changed is domestic politics. We'll we will talk about trade later, but in trade as well, the domestic political context, just after the global financial crisis leading up to the moment we are in today, that has changed. And personalities who may have dealt with the world in a particular direction, let's take the two democratic administrations I dealt with, the Obama and then the Biden administration. The Biden people who worked in the Obama administration still saw the world differently. Because by the time they came in, the implication of geopolitical and domestic changes meant that they had to respond quite differently to that. And that really sets the context of Washington. You asked, you know, what is the impressions of Washington? Washington still remains the geopolitical center of the world. There is no other center like it. It is where intellectuals, policy thinkers, strategic thinkers all come together, dealing with administration, sometimes an administration that is less interested in the outside world, but we need to get our message across to them. We need to connect with them. And that's really been that challenge across the, the, my more than 10, 10 years in Washington, D.C. It's also, though, was a period during which political partisanship became more and more pronounced. We've always had, and, and going back historically, America's always had sharp political distinctions. We fought a civil war, famously. Uh, but once again, in the modern period, it, this, this feels different. It isn't just Trump versus Biden. It isn't just the first black president of the United States of America. The, the whole context seems to have gotten harsher. The language is harsher. The confrontations are harsher. The effectiveness of the Congress as a result is, is diminished. Trust is down. You watched that happen over 12 years. You experienced it and indeed had to cope with it. How'd you do it? You know, the partisanship is sometimes theater. Because of social media, because of the way people want to react, the instant Twitter or X feed that you want to get into, you want to get that. And that echo chamber around the partisanship that comes out makes it a lot harder. You would read or listen to someone on the radio, you know, highly, highly contentious. And then when you go and meet them, they're decent people. They want the same good things for their constituents that I want as an ambassador for the people of Singapore. That connection has to be made. You know, the, the partisanship has just made American politics a lot harder to understand in Washington and outside of Washington. Both as I traveled the country, I traveled, Alan, to 49 states in the time that I was there. 
And which meant I didn't just sit around the beltway. I got out and I met people. And people are decent people who want to get things done. But then when they see the politics happening in Washington, D.C., they get confused and they feel that I need to pick a tribe. And when you start picking tribes, you start creating differences among each other. And the tribes become more narrowly focused because you just pull in everyone. As long as the other person comes from another tribe, I cannot trust them, even if our instincts are fairly similar. It did make it sometimes challenging to connect uh and tell people in Washington, D.C., the world is watching. Everything that you say and do, every insult that you throw out to your political opponent, people are watching and people are learning. And you see politics even around the world in some ways start to reflect U.S.-style political sort of engagement as well. And that makes it a lot harder. Suddenly, the culture wars of the United States are culture wars around the world. The issues that may have been better kept dormant, may have been better dealt with behind the scenes, are suddenly public issues. Now, for diplomats, sometimes they say that our diplomacy is too opaque. We're not transparent enough. But now diplomacy has become very much in the public eye. Uh, We look at U.S.-China relations. Each move, each uh, tactical advantage, we had to deal with the spy balloon earlier this year. Each move of that is watched breathlessly around the world. Will the United States shoot it down? Will the Chinese bring it down? Each one of these just makes diplomacy so much more harder that the Secretary of State had to cancel his visit planned for Beijing at that time of the year because you are now dealing in a global context and a domestic context where everything is just quickly transmitted around the world. Thanks for listening so far. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcast. Now back to today's discussion, sponsored by the Stavros Niarchus Foundation, SNF. Let's talk about China and the U.S. Because you started your service as ambassador in Washington uh, when President uh, Obama was famously shifting to Asia. Whether or not he was doing so, there was a lot of rhetoric about the reorientation of American foreign policy, the prioritization of Asia, perhaps over our traditional Atlantic focus, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And and today we're sitting 12 years later uh, with Dr. Henry Kissinger talking about the potential for war. Now, put aside whether war is possible or not, we can get to that if you want, but clearly that transformation of the U.S.-China relationship uh, which is the critical axis in global politics, is important to the whole world. It's particularly important to a country like Singapore. Does Singapore get caught in a squeeze here? Well, or rather, if Singapore is caught in a squeeze, how do you manage that? And again, <laughs> you're an ex-diplomat now, so what, what, what is, what, what's the secret sauce here? Everyone gets caught in the squeeze. You now have geopolitics with two global powers. There was a moment in the 1990s, the early 2000s, when there was a unipolar moment. and But China has now emerged as a global power. Whether you like it or not, it is there. And countries in the Asia-Pacific, like Singapore, like our neighbors, have to deal with the fact that the United States has been a long resident presence in the region, militarily, of course, but also economically. The largest investor in the Asia-Pacific 
are American companies. They create jobs for people. But China is that growing presence that is a large export market that is buying goods from Southeast Asia and connecting with that. So every country has to deal with these changes taking place. You know, you spoke about President Obama's what they call the pivot to Asia. And that in many ways upset other diplomats in Washington, D.C. at that time because they thought that their countries were less important to the United States. I, I didn't really see it in that context. It was a framing that meant that resources, institutional focus in Washington, D.C. had to expand beyond the traditional areas of foreign policy coverage. You, we dealt with the post-World War, Second World War uh, era. We dealt with the fall of the Berlin Wall. We dealt with the end of the Soviet Union. That kept so much focus in the United States on Europe. Obviously, energy, energy dependence kept that focus on the Middle East. You suddenly had to create a new theater of interest, and that was the pivot to Asia. It did not mean that the other parts of the world were less important even though sometimes some of the rhetoric seemed to point in that direction. The United, everyone looks, every country looks to the U.S. to solve their problems. Every coup leader looks for the U.S. to give some assent. Every new politician elected to office looks to the U.S. to give assent. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, it all has to happen. What President Obama did was recognize the realities of the emergence of China. And how do you deal with that emerging China as a new global player? You know, there was all this talk of a G0, a G2. It just, that was all connected to this idea of the pivot to Asia. It did mean that institutional attention, it did mean that foreign policy attention had to be given to Asia. Unfortunately, and here I will have to be a little less diplomatic than I normally am, I, only, I didn't see enough of that shift taking place in terms of people and training, they may have said, we want to put more military resources. You never, you didn't quite have the expertise and people coming into these roles. They were pulled from other roles, but they didn't have the strong historical, political context of understanding Asia. They lumped Asia and the Asia Pacific as one big region. And then more recently, they see it in the context of competition with China. And when you see it only in the context of U.S.-China competition, everything else becomes, are you for me or are you against me? I think that they, don't, they still don't have a good feel for understanding what is happening in the Asia-Pacific, what they now call the Indo-Pacific, and how can we engage with these countries. You're not yet seeing people emerge with the graduate degrees, with the language expertise, with the country expertise in order to deal with this country. Even over the decade I was in Washington, D.C., despite all the rhetoric of the pivot to Asia, you're still not seeing that happen. And if there is a crisis in the region, as occasionally there is, you will find that you're not getting very good commentary even in the media, for people to understand this. People are looking at it in a context in which a very surface style of context of what is happening in the relationship in the relationships in the Indo-Pacific. But at the same time, it's a bit of a moving target. We just recently saw the BRICS summit in South Africa, and President Xi framed it 
as a future where the BRICS could become the geopolitical alternative to a G7, which is not suggestive of a cooperative environment, but rather a confrontational one that has not just military, but also political, economic, social, cultural uh, aspects to it. We seem, and I should put it as a question, are we headed down a path towards both sides making it more confrontational, making it more of a self-fulfilling prophecy, perhaps, uh, that the world does have to split into these, are you with me or against me kind of blocks? And I would add one piece, one more piece to that question, because that BRICS summit came on the, accidentally came on the heels of the Camp David summit among the U.S., the leaders of the U.S., Korea, and Japan, uh, which clearly was an effort to build a, a some kind of new foundation for, or renewed foundation, perhaps, for American geopolitical presence uh, in the region. So we certainly seem to be headed in a direction where Singapore is going to have to answer that question. Are you with us or against us? You don't want to, nobody wants to, but that's the question that both sides seem to be trying to move towards, or is that too simplistic? You know, I think that the easier analytical framework is to keep going back to Cold War analogies of one side versus the other side. The difference now, and even though these are not necessarily all very powerful countries, these countries now have agency. You look at the Republic of Korea, South Korea, and you look at Japan. Yes, it was an important meeting of Camp David, President Biden bringing them together. But they have had historical animosity. And the idea for them to get into a summit together, shepherded by the United States, I think is very historical. The framing is, this is part of the Cold War against China. People are not looking at the framing. This is also about Japan and Korea and Northeast Asia and how important it is to have stability among these countries. And I think that's sometimes lost when you look at a framing of a Cold War type, us versus them. Similarly, again, in the BRICS summit, yes, President Xi may have said we need to get the BRICS stronger, but there is the voice of the global South. It's a phrase that we need to rethink how we're going to because, again, trying to lump every country into this so-called global south takes away from the agency. But there are large middle powers that have got strong, pivotal interests. Indonesia, Turkey, uh, Brazil. How do you accommodate them in a world which is U.S. versus China? Because each one of these countries has got strong relationships with both the United States and with China, and want to maintain it that way. The, the key thing that we all want is peace and stability. I'm sure neither the United States or China wants to have conflict either. And, you know, but by trying to muster groupings into whether trade groupings, say around the BRICS, say around something called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, as they try and muster them in there, these are not just about pulling allies together. It is out about connecting these countries as part of a wider network. Now, the ideal would be we would go back to a globalized trading system like the WTO, that the UN would work a little bit more uh, effectively. Neither of these are, so you now have these regional connections. But regional connections in which 
other countries, middle powers have a lot more voice. You ask about Singapore. Singapore has made sure in the 58 years that we have been independent, and in this we've seen a very dramatic change in global geopolitics and global strengths, uh, that we choose issues, we choose make decisions based on our own national interests. And in some cases, our national interests will align with one power. In other cases, our national interests will align with another power. In many cases, our national interests align with our region, our regional neighbors in ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Countries, because that gives us more agency as 600 million people, rather than just as one small 5 million country dealing with the United States and China. And each one of this, we take our national interests in, way, in place, and we do have some agency. We try to say that this is how we want to get things done. Being a financial hub, being a trading hub means that everyone wants to be here to do business. And that keeps Singapore going in some sort of uh, uh, prosperous, uh, potentially economically successful way. And that's really the way that we have to deal with it, even as the big countries may have quarrels. And then what you say as a diplomat, as a foreign minister, as a prime minister, is sometimes speak to both sides quietly, sensibly, and give them a sense of how other countries look at these things. I think the one thing Singapore has been able to develop in these many years of diplomacy is trust on both sides, trust in Washington, trust in Beijing. And when you have trust on both sides, you then hope that you can pass on quiet messages, not from one to the other, but really from your own perspective, what is important for small states in order to make sure that we avoid the conflict and look for a much more prosperous, economically successful future. You've mentioned a couple of times global trade, the WTO. Clearly, we have seen peak globalization. Who knows how it's going to evolve in the future, but there seems to be a, a concerted effort by, by the United States, by Europe, by China, to come up with new forms of protectionism. There's almost a growth business in, in new ways to mess up global trade. Singapore has the great virtue of be, being small in that world, that you, you, can, you can get around some of those protections. But do you see that challenge of protectionism, a fundamental challenge for Singapore to have to cope with in the next years? It is a Singapore success has been in a global world, a globalized world, where people, goods, services, trade could move around effectively and efficiently, and where Singapore and our neighbors provided efficient manufacturing, quick manufacturing, cheap manufacturing in order to get goods to consumers around the world very quickly. That world is being put aside. You say we may have had peak globalization. I think these things are circular. You know, you have your peaks, you have your trials, you have your a new peak that come up after that again. It goes up and down. I, I think it will come back. People haven't completely stepped away. But what concerns uh, people in the region, people in Singapore, is a lack of attention to building new trade connections, a focus on deglobalization or de-risking, as they say. That will come with additional costs. 
That will make things much more expensive for the average consumer, but it also makes the world a lot less efficient if you cannot uh, operate in a globalized environment. No, it is, it is one thing that is very, very concerning because small countries, not just Singapore, but many of our neighbors, are dependent on markets in the United States and China and Europe in order to produce. Now, if countries are going to pull back into industrial strategies that say we have to produce everything on our own, and it's not just US-China competition that led to this, what we saw with COVID, when people suddenly realized that uh, the supply chains are not working as effectively, then maybe I better move the supply chain closer to home. Then you have to have a new method in which trade can take place. You have to deal with these new challenges. And with this trade challenge also becomes the new challenge of climate change. Are people using the climate conversation as a new protectionist approach? Or are they using the climate conversation because this is now facing us as an existential threat for humanity. These are issues that, unfortunately, when we started the conversation talking about Washington, D.C., because every day is spent in so many tactical conversations, sometimes these big strategic issues around trade, around climate change, these sometimes get put aside because everyone is looking for the immediate political gain that I get from moving a factory to my district or to my constituency and saying that this is, I'm creating 200 jobs without recognizing that you are breaking a system that has actually nurtured the success of the global order over the past 50 years. So no, it is something that's very concerning for countries like Singapore and we need to find a new way in which trade can continue to operate in an efficient manner, in which globalization does not break up into different regional parts and countries then cannot connect across the boundaries. Last question. You've just completed effectively a 12-year masterclass in the United States of America. 49 states. Which state have did you not go to, by the way? Wyoming. <laughs> it was just too hard. So I left once a day. When I come back to the U.S. again, I can just stop by there. <laughs> okay. In any event, masterclass, three administrations, both parties, both parties switching Congress, the tensions with the Supreme Court, uh, all that travel. What most disappointed you as you sit back and say, compared to what you, how you imagine the United States before you started? I had heard about this before, about how sometimes the United States can become very insular. I found it much more real when I was there. An insularity in the U.S. that made it difficult for them to connect with the outside world. Again, I said, I've been an ambassador to many places. I would find the average person, the average politician, put aside the average citizen, the average politician around the world, much more connected with outside developments, much more interested in the world. In the other countries where you served? In the United States, it became a lot harder because politics was just in the way all the time. 
that it became, I had to have a cheat sheet that I took in to show people this is where Singapore is in the world. Because many people would not even be able to place us geographically on the other part of the world. I would have to go through with them how important Singapore's relationship with the United States is, what Singapore brings to the table, because as far as the U.S. is concerned, Singapore's a 5 million population country on the other side of the world smaller than Rhode Island in terms of geography. Then you, as people start to recognize and realize it, it was, it was real retail politics. It was real retail diplomacy. And that sometimes made it very hard because each change of administration, each change of personality in an office meant that you start at the ground floor again, explaining to them from the bottom up, what the world looks like from Singapore's perspective. And not because they have to do something special for Singapore, but because it fits into U.S. interests. That world of U.S. interests is narrowing. And when that world of U.S. interests narrows, it becomes harder for the 195 other countries in the world to get attention in Washington, D.C. And I think that disappointed me a, a little bit because, of course, you the U.S. is still, as I said earlier, the intellectual center of the world. You need to get your attention. And that was the hard part. Well, everything I know says that you are a very successful ambassador in both directions. You, you served Singapore's national interest well, and you helped the United States understand the importance, the relevance of Singapore. You're a 58-year-old country, I think, for 58th of those years, you have been really quite close to the United States and very supportive through years. So thank you for your service. Uh, and thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.